0: Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.
1: Hi everybody, welcome to Speaking Out for the Blind. I'm Brian McCallum. Our guest today is Jessie Lorenz. She's the executive director of the Independent Living Resource Center of San Francisco, and she's been a mover and shaker advocate for the blind in Washington, D.C., and the California State Capitol. Jessie, quote, works to protect the rights of people with disabilities, end quote. Jessie joins us to talk about her advocacy work and personal life. Hi, Jessie.
0: Hey, Brian. Great to be here.
1: It's great having you here, too. We want to first learn about you, though. Wired Magazine says that you've been blind since birth. Tell us how you became blind and just about your life as a blind person.
0: I was born blind. Um, It was discovered shortly after my birth, on the day of my birth, that uh, I had cataracts and glaucoma. The doctor's weren't sure, because I was born in a very small town called Durango, Colorado, which at that time the population was 15,000. They weren't sure exactly what to do for my eyes, so they sent me to Denver. And over the first 24 months of my life, I had 21 eye surgeries with the, the hope of saving or salvaging some of my eyesight. They were not successful. My condition now is best characterized as wearing bilateral prosthesis, so I have two fake eyes.
1: Interesting. Colorado, you say. I have an uncle from Denver, and I've also looked online, and I've learned that Denver has some awesome medical care.
0: Yeah, definitely. They've got a great children's hospital there, and Denver's just kind of a great place because people in Denver, they really know how to have fun outside. They do a lot of skiing. They do a lot of hiking. Can't say enough good things about Colorado and Denver specifically.
1: Also, Wired Magazine says that your blindness limits how you interact with people, especially in a personal setting. How is this the case, and
0: what, uh, do, you well, do, what do
1: you do to speak out to show your kindness to Let's be clear, clear
0: fa- that I didn't write the Wired article, and that that, that, that is a sentence written by likely a sighted person inferring the experience of blindness. You know how that goes. Sure. I wouldn't say that my blindness does limit how I interact with people. I mean, certainly at a cocktail party, it is a little bit harder to work the room without eye contact and those sort of non-visual clues. But even those things are becoming mitigated by technology. You know, there are apps now that you can download when you go to conferences and such. You're able to tell Who's in the room with you and it's not a it's not a special app or a special feature of being blind. it's technology that is just becoming more mainstream for group situations where people are unfamiliar with each other.
1: That's right. Let's talk about your journey to working in advocacy for the blind and disabled. I was looking at your LinkedIn page and it says that you You completed your education in public policy from San Francisco State University from 1998 to 2001. I'm also an SF State grad, believe it or not. Go Gators! How did you speak out to convince your professors that you could do this work to pursue a career in this particular field?
0: I mean, as a blind individual, our lives are often full of small and big situations that turn us into advocates. I would say, in my University days, one of my favorite stories to tell is my during my first year, I was enrolled in statistics to get my quantitative reasoning credit.
1: I remember taking that same exact class.
0: It was very challenging because at that time they had, I'm dating myself right now, but uh, they had audio cassette tapes from Recording for the Blind and Dyslexic. That's how I read my statistics book. I made a request to get the book in Braille. The school denied it. I took the request up the ladder, and then a few weeks later, I found a a message asking me to come meet the dean of undergraduate students in his office. Having no idea what this was about, I went to his office, and he had this lovely conversation with me offering to waive the quantitative reasoning requirement because, after all, it was going to cost quite a bit to have a statistics book put into Braille. And I was young, felt like that was special treatment that I wanted no part of. If everyone else had to do the quantitative reasoning requirement, then so would I. So I promptly made my back straight and said, no, thank you. Have a nice day and left his office. They did Braille the book for me. I had to take the class three times before I passed it, but eventually I passed it.
1: According to one of the recent issues of the Independent Living Resource Center's newsletter titled DELA, D-E-L-A, you started working as their systems change advocate in 2000. What did you do in this position, and how did you speak out to work in this role?
0: Well, at that time, I was a student still at San Francisco State, and I met someone at the local independent living center, the Independent Living Resource Center, San Francisco, who was working on a bill to allow people who needed help with things like eating or using the toilet in the workplace to have in-home support service hours. It would basically change a, a portion of California state law so that people could use those hours in the workplace if needed. And I got really into the process of going to Sacramento and meeting with different subcommittees. Uh, the person who authored this bill was a Dionne Ariner, who was a state assemblywoman and then senator from Berkeley. And I really enjoyed the process. I enjoyed being around the table with people who were really, really smart and who wanted to make changes. This is how my brain works. This is the kind of thinking I want to be doing and i applied for a job i got the job in 2006 i went and worked for the san francisco mayor's office on disability filing ada complaints for a while that was never full-time work with benefits though it gave me a really great experience on processing compliance complaints for the city of san francisco and then i was really fortunate i had a wonderful opportunity to go to the san francisco lighthouse for the blind and visually impaired and work for Anita Aaron who is the best boss I've ever had. She taught me so much. By and by the director at the Independent Living Center was going to retire and the board and I met and spoke. It was sort of a lot more complicated than that but um, in 2011 I took over this role.
1: Let's talk about a few of your accomplishments though. You went to the lighthouse. One of the things you did as the director of public policy and information there, was that you managed, staffed, and established the Vision Loss Resource Center. Tell us more about the center.
0: Most people who experience visual impairment over the course of a lifetime start experiencing it later in life. Um, some of us are, are born with these conditions, but a lot of people are not. And what she, what the American Foundation of the Blind has found is that the majority of folks are not connected to rehabilitation or social services agencies, especially initially, you know, when they have an initial diagnosis of blindness or visual impairment. And the Vision Loss Resource Center was our endeavor to create a one-stop telephone number in Northern California where family members, people with visual impairment, or service providers could find good quality resource information on vision loss. I really think that disability and thriving with a disability It's it, you can break it down to the ABC's. Do you have the adaptations in your life that you need, such as maybe a talking microwave or a wheelchair ramp? Are you connected with the benefits that may be available to you, such as disabled student services or um, in some cases, do you have your Medicare or Medi-Cal benefits arranged the way they should be? And C, community. Oftentimes, when when disability strikes, people become very isolated. They become very depressed. Um, it's a big life-changing thing. And if people um, stop being connected to community, whether that's the blind community. Other folks with disabilities, or your church community, whatever whatever community is, the Vision Loss Resource Center really endeavored to to touch on those three issues: um, adaptation, benefits, and community, and help people move in the direction to making sure that all those base, all three of those bases were covered.
1: When you got the job as the Resource Center's Executive Director. Two of your most important priorities were to diversify the organization's funding and community building, too. How have you and the Independent Living Resource Center satisfied these two priorities?
0: Well, diversifying the funding is an ongoing uh, effort. We have managed to increase are funding from non-governmental sources in the last five years by about 18%, I think, in the, in the last budget cycle, um, which is good. I mean, you know, if you look at centers in the aggregate, but really for us to be able to do the kind of robust, flexible advocacy that we'd like to do, we need to find more sources of funding that are not tied to government money. And as far as community, when I took over this role, The organization was on the third floor of a kind of rundown office building um, on Mission Street. And in 2014, we both built and moved to a fully accessible community center right across the street from the Moscone Center in downtown San Francisco. The center has a large meeting room that people can Uh, It's fully accessible, and people can use it for community meetings. We use it to hold workshops. The goal of creating the space like this was to really look at that letter C, that community.
1: You've also represented the center at this special 25-year celebration of the Americans with Disabilities Act in July 2015. Oh,
0: yes, when I swooned.
1: (laughs) Yes, when you swooned in Washington, D.C., at the White House. You even got to meet one of America's biggest celebrities, President Obama. Tell us more about the exciting meeting and event.
0: Yes, well, I'm not much of a swooner. Um, <laughs> I'm really not so sure that I even ever have swooned, but I feel like I definitely swooned when I met Barack Obama uh, last July. I was part of a a large group of people from around the country, there are probably, I think, 270, somewhere between 270 and 300 people, that went for a big banquet at the White House, or, not banquet's not correct, we didn't actually have meals, we had, it was a ceremony, a big ceremony at the White House, and somehow or another, I don't know how, I got put on the short list of about 25 people who got to meet him in person. I got taken into this small room with these other people like Tatiana McFadden um who's a wheelchair marathon racer. She and I sort of got put in a small group together so I kind of hung out with her. She was my guide for this this part of the event. They let us go in one by one. We had to walk up this ramp, shake the president's hand, and then turn and get a picture taken. It was my turn and I had to walk this ramp with my cane and like My knees were shaking. (laughs) It was so, it was almost embarrassing how giddy and silly I felt. But um, (laughs) so the president came towards me and he grabbed my hand and he said, Thank you for all of the work that you are doing in the San Francisco Bay Area to make transportation more accessible. And then I was like shocked that he actually had that much information on me. My heart was beating. I said, thank you for the leadership that you've shown in in this community. And then he puts his arm around me, pulls me in close to him, and he's like, okay, smile for the picture. And I'm thinking, I think I'm going to pass out. And then all these Secret <laughs> Service people are going to have to pick me up, and it's going to be really embarrassing. But I didn't. I just, like, I smiled and... He did the picture and, and that was it. It's really funny, you know, when the, the leader of the free world is like putting his arm around you and saying something that's somewhat specific about you. It is, for me, it was just like, oh my gosh, that's such an honor.
1: And aside from being the center's executive director, you continue to advocate for the blind and disabled on multiple levels. According to KCRA-TV in Sacramento, whose story got actually feeded to the Bay Area on KTVU Fox 2. You recently attended this special California Department of Motor Vehicles or DMV hearing or meeting on Google's new driverless cars. How did you advocate for the driverless cars at this meeting?
0: Well, let me back up a little bit to say that before I went to that meeting, I've actually driven one of the autonomous cars down at Google. And when I say driven, I mean that I was in the passenger seat and I pushed the go button and the car had a pre-programmed route in it, and I, the woman with no eyes, took a little drive. And that was amazing and empowering. I have a four-year-old daughter, and the joke around my circle of friends is, who's going to drive first? I don't think it's a joke. I think I'm going to drive first. The California Department of Motor Vehicles is in the process of writing regulations governing the use of autonomous cars. Some people say driverless cars. I think we need to be careful about our language. Autonomous cars is what we're talking about because the, the driving is being done by a computer, not a human. And the feds have recently clarified some things around that. I won't go into all of the details, though I could. And the California Department of Motor Vehicles originally issued these regulations saying that only a California licensed driver can be driving in an autonomous vehicle. And of course, the disability community who sees these autonomous vehicles as a real potential in terms of access, equality and freedom for our people, we showed up at both the hearing in Sacramento and the hearing in Los Angeles and said, don't write regulations that are going to be so limiting that you're keeping our people out when it's not necessary. Because the reality is if you have a vehicle with an extensive amount of map data in it, and it does take a long time to create enough map data to make things safe, your argument about needing a licensed driver becomes moot. And in many instances, an autonomous vehicle especially the more autonomous vehicles on the road, the safer an autonomous vehicle is going to be because they're all talking. It's a network system and they're talking to, to each other. Let's see, what else can I tell you about autonomous vehicles? I mean, this is a technology that I think a lot of people knee-jerk in terms of their reaction. Um, they knee-jerk to, oh my gosh, dangerous. I'm a sighted driver and I see how, how many unknowns there are on the road, blah, blah, blah. Well, the reality is, is that these autonomous cars are getting a lot smarter There are pilots in Michigan, for example, where autonomous vehicles are being used to transport vets to medical appointments, for example, so you can easily see ultimately a system like this being used for paratransit or Uber services. There are pilots in Nevada where goods, large truckloads of goods, are being transported in part by autonomous vehicles So it's not if this technology goes mainstream, it's when it goes mainstream. And as blind people, we need to be on the forefront, making sure that our people are not left in the waiting room when it's not necessary.
1: That's right. Continuing to advocate for the blind and disabled on a personal level has also been very important for you. I was watching a story on Al Jazeera America, the cable network. It's the American version of Al Jazeera the Middle East News Network, they reported that you conquered this long legal battle to keep your daughter, named Jean, in custody. This was part of a divorce and lawsuit. If it's okay, I was wondering if you might tell us more about the battle and how that paved the way for the blind and disabled to continue having their own opportunities to parent their kids.
0: First of all, I was never married, so it wasn't a divorce, but I did have a child with someone that we did not end up staying together after the birth of the child. And I was in a very long protracted legal battle with my ex and his family who based their efforts to gain custody of my daughter on my vision loss. It was a very long, horrible, protracted, painful battle which I eventually won, and I successfully have custody of our daughter. As a result of that, what I I learned is that the family law system, and if you are married or have kids, 50% of folks are going to end up somehow or another touching the family law system over a lifetime. The family law system is riddled with bias and discrimination and old antiquated ideas about blind people and our ability to care for ourselves, let alone our kids. Um, I had a report come back from a saying something to the effect of, "Well, I think it's going to be very difficult for Miss Lorenz to care for her child, as she likely requires 24-hour care herself." Of course, that was refutable. I mean, this is a psychologist who works for the court system. <laughs> In Alameda County, California, which is the same county where Berkeley is, this is progressive Mecca. But unfortunately, sometimes even the most progressive people tend towards paternalization. As a result of my battles in this arena, because I am by far not the only blind parent, let alone parent with a disability, who has experienced these kinds of problems, I now chair the National Council on Independent Living, ADA Subcommittee on the Rights of Parents with Disabilities and Our Families. We are working on taking the memo that Department of Justice published last year about the need for social service and family law systems to make accommodations to ensure that families stay together. We're working on taking that memo and putting it into some training materials for both people with disabilities and on-the-ground staff. We're also working on a toolkit with the Christopher Reeve Foundation. For families who have a parent with a disability that has resources and tips and stuff like that in it. So if any of your listeners are into advocating around the rights of parents with disabilities in our families, the committee is looking for new members and I would be more than happy to, you know, use this as an opportunity to recruit. My email is Jessie, J-E-S-S-I-E, at I-L-R-C-S-F dot org and shoot me an email and i'll hook you up with the details about the committee
1: and uh, we'll put that address on our show website if that's okay with you definitely Spe- speaking out for the dot you're one of the keys to integrating the blind and disabled into all aspects of society thanks for joining us today
0: yeah thank you for having me this was fun
1: before we go i welcome your comments on this show just visit and like me on Facebook at Speaking Out for the Blind, or follow me on Twitter at SpeakOutBlind or Speak Out for the Blind. You may also contact me at McAllen3 at Comcast That's M C C A L L E N, the number three. And don't forget my show website. That's SpeakingOutForTheBlind.weebly.com. Look for additional links and information on today's show under the list of episodes and show news tab. Check out my on-demand show archive at acbradio.org slash speaking-out-for-the-blind. That's all for this edition of Speaking Out for the Blind. Thanks for listening, and remember to speak out! Here at ACB Radio Mainstream, we are always working to improve the quality of our programming. If you have any feedback about anything you have heard here on ACB Radio Mainstream, please let us know by sending an email to support at acbradio.org. That's support at acbradio.org. You are listening to ACB Radio Mainstream, connecting the blind community. <laughs> (laughs) Coming April 3rd, it's the GDUI Ah, auction. The The auction, Sunday, April 3, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern. The purpose, it's to pay for our voting system. We think that's a great step forward for democracy. I think it's going to be a great success. So come on out and support Guide Dog Users, Inc., live on April 3rd from Angry 7 to 9 p.m eastern only on the ACB radio live events if channel he has a dog he won't be lonesome and the doggy will have a good home mark
0: your calendar April 7th through the 10th the California Council of the Blind will be streaming its state convention and we will be bringing you the coverage on ACB Radio Live Event Stream. Watch our lists and Twitter for further information. Meanwhile, mark your calendar April 7th through the 10th on ACB Radio Live Event Stream.